0: Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa.
1: And I'm Jazzy, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Hollow Hollow podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino Canadian vibe.
0: We at the Halo Halo podcast acknowledge that our creative project spans these areas and territories and are grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are with us today, those who have gone before us, and the youth that inspires us. We recognize the land and benefits it provides all of us as an act of reconciliation, as recommended by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action, and gratitude to those whose territory we reside on, work on, or are visiting. I'm podcasting from the traditional, unceded territory of the Algonquin and Bay people.
1: And I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Happy
0: 2024, Sigs! Happy 2024, Kuya!
1: Oh my goodness, before we get into our main episode, which is turning 25 as we go into the vault and look at 1999, and specifically for this episode, Fight Club, Boys Don't Cry, and American Pie, and then later talking about Rethinking Filipino Masculinity in the Diaspora— how was your new year's how was christmas how was your Nochebuena? buena oh,
0: there was a lot of like pop culture to catch up on we haven't talked to each other since like we oh, ended yes. in de- december so that's right three hot things new year's eve was interesting we watched the eras tour oh how was that prime video. my daughter delaney got to stay up to midnight she loved the music but oh we rented it on prime video yeah right? and we were watching it and like listen We were into the Red Era, the Taylor Swift era, Fearless. We wanted 1989. When it came to folklore yes like it was just dragging and uh oh. we we're like oh my I kinda god i thought it was a snooze fest. Yeah, yeah it was, and it was. Like, oh, uh, and then i believe delaney was like we can fast forward it right i'm like oh yeah that's right <laughs> oh my gosh i love delaney it. already it so, it's you know, like she's already like, read the room you know, we're like oh right we forgot we rented it we don't have to sit through it like the actual concert i oh would have went goodness. to get like a drink but it was a great time. Oh, it's nice. getting primed. Like yes, Delaney's yes. excited now because she got one of her Christmas presents. I'm <gasps> taking to Olivia Rodrigo. That's right. How was 29. her reaction? She was like, we're going to a concert. I'm like, yes, we are. Yes. She's like, no way. It'll be great. Oh, my gosh. There's two things I ran into during the holidays, and yes. one of them I wanted to mention to you because I thought of Michael, So, okay. your partner. I've been going back to the gym, so when I go to the gym, sometimes for 50 Minutes Cardio, CBC's playing. Yes. And yes. Have you ever heard of this show? It's a reality competition show about miniatures on CBC. No, okay. tell me oh, yeah. You need to watch it. So basically, it's a reality show. I don't know if it's called The Best Miniaturist. I apologize for not knowing the title. This is a must-see for your partner. I was addicted to it, and it's only 15 minutes. So, like, sometimes I've gone consecutively. If I'm, like, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm, like, I'm going to go during this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'll do a cool-down for maybe half an hour after to watch it. So, you compete. You have, like, a miniature house – and their point is, they get assignments, all the contestants. So, one week they could be doing a kitchen, one week they're doing oh, a den. Cool. So, this is the best part. So, I yeah. saw the episode where they did kitchens, right? Yeah. If you see the personalities, one guy, like his house theme is like a mad scientist. So, in his kitchen, he had an oven that was functioning. <laughs> and yes. in the sink, he had, it was sort of smoky and had like an octopus. <gasps> Wow! coming out. I was like, "That's brilliant." Another gentleman is indigenous, so he made a kitchen where he was making bannock. So yes. he made little mason jar heads, cutting out the dough. Oh, it looked neat. amazing. Another oh, woman amazing. had a puppy, so she had a messy kitchen, and she put little paw prints. <laughs> wow! In the flour. Oh my gosh! <laughs> the really detail. It was really cool. And then I think this woman on a, another episode, they had to do a bedroom. So she did like a bed with mud from the dog. So she made the dog with paw prints and right. like a torn up little pillow.
1: Oh, cool. It was,
0: like the details are crazy. And like the miniature judges would be like sometimes when it's a little sloppy, they'd be a little bit like, OK, the details weren't clear. here. It looks good. But, you are not showing the details where you're like, oh, my God, like everything yeah but the best part is and this is where i think michael would love it let's say you have eight hours to do one room and the sixth hour they'll have this mini mall open so one of the hosts will say the mini mall's <laughs> open so you can go get pieces yes, from yes, a mini yes. mall to put in to supplement your, oh your my sun. god
1: amazing
0: and the indigenous guy and i apologize for not knowing the names. he was just like i am not using that mini mall ever and he did wow. all this from scratch. Like, it is addictive. I'm sure it's streaming on CBC Jam, yeah. but you would be totally oh, like, we'll have this to is that sick. Out. I'll have to tell it's, about it's, that Michael Michael sure. is going to love it. Yeah. The other thing, and I don't know, have you been watching on Disney Plus What If Season 2? No, I haven't been watching okay. Season 2. I talked about What If Season 1, yes. where it's just alternate universes. What If Season 2 doubles down? I don't care what anyone mm. says. You need to watch it. Not only does What If Season 2 build on the plot lines for these alternate universes in Season 2, but like there is an episode 6, and it is all in Mohawk, indigenous culture. It's on the Mohawk Nation, yeah. and it is all in subtitles. Yeah. So it's, it's conducted... In Mohawk, right? There's a main character named Kahori, played by Devery Jacobs from the show Reservation Dogs. Wow! And the Tesseract like shatters in Thor's, and it comes down into into like the world, yeah. And it comes into one of those lakes, and oh my goodness, it's about colonization, and so this. Native, Kohori, is fleeing with her brother from Spanish colonists. Yeah. Yeah. And doing this, they shoot her, and she falls into this pool, which the Tesseract's in. She goes to this alternate universe, gets all these powers, and she's like, what is this? And there's other lost Mohawk people like, oh, this is a better world. We have all these powers. We respect the land. And she goes, but people are suffering. How do I get back to that portal? We are not. She goes, so we're we're surviving and doing good here. What about the people we left? So she goes back through this portal and stops the colonizers, the Spanish colonizers Oh my and the power. She does it. And I don't mean to spoil it. I need you to watch it. She goes in and overtakes all these colonizers, save the people for them to live. They have a flash forward and you see Queen Isabella from Spain going, what? How come they haven't come back? Where are these people? And she's speaking Spanish. All of a sudden, you see Kahori come through a portal. She's like, hi there. She's like, who told you that you can make decisions on claiming land? She goes, (laughs) I'm the queen. So she takes the throne and she breaks it. She goes, we have a right to respect. There's room for all of us. We don't have to claim the land. We can live here peacefully. Wow. It is amazing. That's deep. If they have that, if it was a full movie, I would have watched it. Wow, that's cool. It was like beyond and not only that they did tons of like there's an episode was a christmas episode and of yeah. happy hogan was sort of like bruce willis at christmas <laughs> and it was totally like die hard yeah like, yeah it was yeah super funny which and of course is a
1: christmas movie right so which is
0: a total christmas movie and then episode seven they had Kid blanchett was on it really Hela, Hela, oh, right? cool. yeah, and yeah. they just said what if she found the ten rings <gasps> It was, and she was a hoot through the whole thing. Like, she was joking and she's like, what are these, like, what's going on here? It was hilarious. Oh it gosh. was beyond, like, I don't care what anyone's saying. They haven't lost their touch. What right. if season two, episode six, the Mohawk Nation, they need to create more, create a movie of it. I will watch it. It was so good. I cannot oh, say enough. Disney
1: and Marvel—they're making it. such I an loved interesting it. commentary
0: and you are with would the times. Yeah, you yeah. would have loved it. Put it on your queue. I promise. Okay. You. And the minute and the miniatures, because I want to hear what and Michael And the miniatures. I'll find out. I'll find out. Yeah, find out yeah. For yeah sure. Michael will love it. Now, what have you been doing, pop culture wise? Oh, well, pop culture
1: wise. Well, speaking of Michael, yes, you'll recall on December fourth, on my birthday. Typically, I like to go out and have dinner, and then yeah. sometimes it's like, oh, what special thing do I want to do? You know, something that I rarely do these days is actually go out to see a movie. Usually I'm streaming something at home. So I decided to go see Songbirds and Snakes, the Hunger games prequel. I very much enjoyed it. it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed seeing... If you will, Coriolanus Snow later becomes President Snow in the Hunger Games series. Now, Michael was never into the Hunger Games. And I think when he first saw Effie Trinket come on stage and saw her wild hair and saw people from the Capitol in their outlandish outfits, he was like, I'm out. I can't watch this because he just thought this is too much. And I said, but it's a dystopian vision of the future and all of this stuff. And he was like, no, I don't want to see anything that looks this outrageous. I can't believe it. But after seeing the prequel and he begrudgingly saw it because it was for my birthday. Of course. This is actually interesting. I wonder what the rest of The Hunger Games has been like. So we've been slowly revisiting the entire series with him. And as you get through the series, it gets more darker and less contagious. And you don't see the capital people looking like sycophants. Oh,
0: no, no, no. no. Yeah. You know, these blind followers.
1: Yeah, that's right. As we're watching The Hunger Games, he's actually really coming to love all the characters. So really, that's what we've been doing during the holidays is actually revisiting The Hunger Games. The other thing that we've been into is watching fellow travelers with Matt I Balmer heard about the show. Bailey. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes, yes. So Jonathan Bailey plays this graduate from a political program who then ends up meeting a State Department war veteran, Matt Bomber. Right. And they end up having this kind of all-consuming love affair that starts right. off in the 1950s with the McCarthy era and the Lavender oh, Scare. And then just goes from decade to decade watching these two men intertwine with one another at various parts in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so Matt Bomber's character decides to kind of live or decides to live a straight life while Jonathan Bailey starts to live his life. And it's such a tragic and strangely all-consuming and yet wonderful to watch at the same time. Oh, yeah? It holds nothing back in terms of sexuality. As Michael and I are watching this, we're just like, in 25 years, I didn't know that we would get to this point in cinema and television and prestige television, for that matter, watching Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. It's been incredible just kind of watching it. And it's just also tragic at the same time. And it's been wonderful to see. And it's been historical and yet not necessarily didactic. And I think it does a service to millennial and Gen Z and Gen Alpha kids that are out there, because I think this tells the story of how we got to where we got to in terms of human rights with respect to gay folk. And why ah. we still continue need to kind of sustain these gay rights. That's what's been interesting in terms of pop culture. But it's just wonderful to kind of watch history being depicted, and what I think is very much an honest depiction of what happened to gay people living in the again the fifties to like McCarthy era. Yeah, it's big. yeah, yeah. You know, you couldn't let people know that you were gay for fear that you could be then questioned and then fired out of the State Department and lose like your a career. Witch hunt. Over it. Like a witch hunt. Yeah. Right. Which, if you think about a witch hunt, a witch hunt was also a human rights atrocity. When you think about it, I recall going to Salem, Massachusetts, and just reading the testament plaques that that remind us that the witch hunts in Salem were also human rights violations. Well, this whole TV series was about kind of watching gay folks' rights being not having gay rights or not having rights Mm -hmm. as human beings and then slowly gaining them. Just a wonderful kind of depiction and documentation of human rights history with the gay community. So if you ever get a chance, that might be something. Put it continue. in the queue. Okay. Yeah, put it in the How many episodes is the series? My memory serves me correct. I think it's eight. Okay. No so, problem. But Excellent. they're full hour episodes. And again, and really explicit about sexuality too. So that's something. You must've
0: enjoyed this. Matt Bomer and Jonathan Bailey.
1: Totally. And <laughs> I have to say Jonathan Bailey, really great actor. Like he has an American accent. I was going to say, know, it's American. Yeah. Totally distinguished from his Bridgerton character. Oh, you wow. Know, so, like, it's almost like, is this the same actor? And it is. But That's good. But it's really great. And it was great for the, at least for Michael and myself, watching two gay men be leading men. And I always will remember Actually Balmer, gay men. Gay men. portraying gay men, that, right? That's right. And Matt okay. Bomber being told by a Hollywood agent decades ago, you'll never be a leading man. Remember
0: White Collar? And they totally. were still effusive, he was still effusive at white collar, but I think it was his publicity saying that, but I'm like, and after he's like, I don't care. Like yeah. I'm he's gay, so what? Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: You know, he was still charming and suave and all of that stuff. Now, the only thing that I'll probably say about all of this is yeah. You know, Matt Bomber and Jonathan Bailey, they're somewhere in their 30s, I think. Right. At, at right. Point. Yeah. And so watching them play themselves in the 50s as like young 20 year olds was like, oh, this is a kind of a stretch, but I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for a second. And then when they had to play 50 year olds, it was kind of like, oh, uh, you kind of needed to age them a little bit more. Right. Or they were very. They, were, they looked a bit too young for their 50s. And I thought They're to playing myself, dress
0: up almost, right? Yeah. A
1: little bit. And it was kind of like, it's yeah. either that or y- you discovered an Estee Lauder skincare regime that no one knew about in the 1980s <laughs> is what I was thinking. Still but I best. was able Remember, you guys are
0: still advanced. You guys know how to take care of your skin. It's the only one that you got. Right, right.
1: right. Well, as gay men, that's exactly it. You know, our skincare regime Regime. is part part (laughs) of our membership in being gay. I mean, that's kind of been in-joke listeners. But speaking of men, and at some point we'll get into a few gay men at some point, that's what today's topic is all about, is looking at masculinity. And the way that we're going to be looking at it in The Vault is through three specific films. And Sigs... Can you believe that it's already been 25 years since Fight Club, Boys Don't Cry, and American Pie has been out? When I think about it, it just feels like just a couple of days ago that I've seen all three of these films.
0: It's so interesting. And it's so funny. We were inspired by this Back to the Ball episode because I got a book about movies from 1999 being an amazing year. And Mm -hmm. Jesse said, Kuya, you were just like, hey, look at these three texts per se and our views on it has changed from 1999 to 2024 and it does feel like just yesterday and these movies are part of the zeitgeist yes if you just reference things have changed and i i think we'll have some interesting things to talk about there's so many parallels and it's so funny even in our pop culture catch-up it sort of colors these types of like movies that we're going to be focusing on today but 25 years shocking When I talking. think
1: about Fight Club, Boys Don't Cry, American Pie, you're right, they've were the zeitgeist of the moment but also have had impact and influence to this day and we kind of see it in some of the media that we've been talking about as you've just said. Take us through Fight Club. Tell our listeners for those are listeners that haven't seen Fight Club
0: what Fight Club is all about. So this is based on a book from Chuck Palniak. A nameless first-person narrator, played by Edward Norton, attends Mm. a support group in an attempt to subdue his emotional state Mm. and relive his insomniac state. So there he meets a woman named Marla, played by Helena Bonham Carter, another fake attendee of this support group. And his life becomes a little bit more bearable. So when he suits himself with this character, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, at like peak Pitt, Right? right, Just after Joe Black and the Legends of the Fall, yeah. he's dragged into this underground fight club and soap making scheme. And I love that. Yeah. I, you think of the fight club, but oh, yeah, there's soap to it. There's That's soap why too at the same poster time. The yeah. has fight club and soap. Yeah. Together, these two men spiral out of control and engage in this competitive rivalry for love and mm. power. Right. It was directed by David Fincher, yes?
1: Yes. So, David Fincher first started his career actually making music videos, I think, since the mid 80s. And how I kind of came to know Dave Fincher was this is because through his work, of course, directing Madonna's Vogue and Bad Girl and George Michael's Freedom, which for me were really iconic and film noir type of videos. Yes. So, they were very fun to watch and also cinematic. And you can see him bringing the same cinematic quality to Fight Club and later Seven, of course. And in terms of David Fincher and Fight Club, I remember cultural studies, critiques and critics saying that Fight Club was really a rejection of consumer culture in the United States Mm -hmm. and around the world. And that it was really a, a response to the rise of consumerism as a way to deal with mental health. And interestingly enough, masculinity. And I don't know about you, Sigs, how many men's fitness cover models and Vogue or Vanity Fair, you know, like I still remember all of those iconic shots of Brad Pitt looking so
0: felt and swole and having that taper physique. If you recall. That was, when I think of Fight Club, I thought of that. Like, that's one of the things that, in 1999, watching it, and I'll talk about consumerism in a second, like, Men's Health was quoted that that was the stature and physique that males wanted to do. Now, right. Bar Pit was super lean and cut. Yeah, He was lean. That's the other thing. This isn't bulk of, like, musculature. Like, the shot I see in my head is where he's smoking a cigarette and he's shirtless during the fight club. And they're like, that was what everyone wanted to attain. And, like, when you say that, you know, he has the V-shaped muscles, like, from his torso down to his, like, other regions. And, like, that was, like, the goal. Like, I think that men, and I'm saying this at writ large, especially with Men's Health magazine, it was like, this is the body to attain to.
1: Yeah. It, wasn't it was just such a, a body standard builder. It was, this, no. if you will, lean. And I would also say dehydrated. Look, he, he was, was probably, probably the first, to get first that trap cuts. out there, you know? And yeah, yeah, he totally had to be dehydrated to look that ripped at the time. And it was just like, it not only just influenced masculinity, but I would also say gay masculinity suddenly it became, this was something desirous in a lot of ways. Now in 1999,
0: what did you think of all of this in terms so, of what this movie was this all about? This whole movie? Yeah. It's so funny because when you said about consumerism, and if you've watched the movie, and we apologize for any spoilers, there's a fantastic twist about the two lead characters, yeah. which you find yeah. out. And that I'm not going to tell you, but right. it's an interesting twist at the end that you find out that these two characters are... Related somehow. Related somehow. That's a great way. But when you say consumerism, I always have this scene played out in my mind, amongst many in this movie, where there's a scene where it looks like an Ikea catalog. Yeah, yeah. you remember that in all the prices? I do, I do. There was such a rejection about consumerism, about like, we're so caught up in acquiring these things and the prices of those things. It didn't really matter. But the fact of the matter of acquiring these things... Means a better life mentally and physically. Right. So it's so good that you touch on this. And I know you'll touch about this further. Like, it was a comment on mental health and being able to, I need to work out these feelings. Yeah. But in Fight Club, all the tagline was First rule about Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club.
1: Yes, that's and
0: right. So, like, parallel into, like, okay, we've got issues, but guess what? We're not going to talk about them. We're going to, like, we're just going to them them punch them out. Punch them all out, yeah. and you're going to feel better. And then in those support groups, you see different characters. And I always think of the meatloaf character who was dealing with an issue, like right. Gyna gyneumachas- I apologize, Mastiaver, where yes. he had yes, overdeveloped yes. breasts. And it was such a comment on that that like he was bearing this, but he wanted to be part of this whole fight club. But yeah. he had this thing that he was less of a man because he was dealing with this condition. It was yeah. so it's so funny how playing on the mind you watch you're like oh okay I can see why he does it but like on the bigger picture you're like wow this is this goal of like if I am nimble and I can fight without sharing my feelings this is the way to express itself. Like, right now, I, if listeners, I'm, like, clenching my fist. Like, this was <laughs> the way to do it. And, yeah. you don't know, talk about it. And have a cigarette and get this lean-toned body and partake in this show of machismo. And it, it was masculinity. Like, this was an example of it. And it was very strident. We saw it in posters. It was everywhere. Like, even in the posters, you see him holding, like, the bar of soap, Brad Pitt. And he took Center stage. Even though Edward Norton is actually the lead character. Yes. Brad Pitt, Tyler Durden was just there which sort of links to the main appeal but it was so like in your face this is how we're going to sublimate it don't share your feelings we're going to even though this guy's of a support group you're supposed to share it sort of goes against it
1: when i think about that meatloaf character yeah. i think in some ways that was really a metaphor for how at the time america was being seen as soft or becoming soft in terms of a global power and perhaps mm-hmm. maybe this was the start of the demise of the US influence on the global world. And when I think about that, soft is really just code for, if you will, being emasculated or being feminized. And in some ways, Fight Club was actually a reaction to all of that, that we need to show our force. We need to show our aggressiveness. We need to be Mm -hmm. able to show our, as you say, the machismo. And in some ways, that this was kind of like a commentary in terms of what was happening with respect to the United States, which had propped up this idea of capitalism and consumerism for quite a long time up until this moment. For me, yes, you know, instead of actually talking things out like what we were supposed to see in the first, if you will, 20 minutes where we see yes. Ed Norton and Halibut <laughs> Bonham Carter's characters kind of float from support group to support
0: group. Right.
1: Instead, it's like, well, we're actually finding relief through this unspoken fight club. And that idea that first rule of fight club where you don't talk about fight club embodied for me that whole idea of what masculinity is all about, which is that you're supposed to be restrictive and how ultimately... This is actually out of touch with reality, I think is really what the movie was trying to say at the time in 1999. That's certainly what I was thinking. I did agree that it was a critique on consumerism and a critique on the downfall of, of United States consumeristic culture and capitalism. But I thought mm. it was also making a comment that men shouldn't talk. You know, We shouldn't <laughs> let men talk. They can fight it out. But I think to myself, when men fight it out, it turns into war, which I think in some ways <laughs> what Project Mayhem was all about. And then we're supposed to clean it up with soap afterwards. Yeah, oh, that's, that's
0: true. That's I cleanse. don't know
1: that oh. you can actually get cleansed that way. <laughs> yeah. and I don't think that you can actually get rid of the trauma that invariably comes from war. That's certainly what I was thinking about in 1999. Today, Sigs, I think so much more like upon reviewing it for this particular podcast episode. You know, what I started to pay more attention to is this whole project mayhem. So in all of this, as Brad Pitt and Ed Norton's characters get together, they start to concoct this whole project mayhem, which is really about kind of trying to overthrow capitalism at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. But when I think about it as a metaphor, it's actually saying to me that masculinity, traditional masculinity is actually like mayhem, meaning that traditional masculinity is really chaotic, destructive, and violent. And I'm sure, you know, our listeners out there would agree with this critique. Interestingly mm-hmm. enough, I think that this is even more true today than back in 1999. I think back in 1999, yes, perhaps we had these ideas of machismo, but I think in some ways our society has really doubled down on this idea that if we're going to adhere to any type of masculinity, it's going to be chaotic, destructive, and violent. And in fact, I know that millennials, Gen Z, folks are calling that really toxic masculinity, and I would agree. I would agree that that's what this was all depicting. The other thing that I think about today upon review, and I'm curious to know what you think, Sigs, is that in 1999, I thought that, Fight Club was actually bringing awareness to men's health issues and men's mental health issues. And I thought that this was a, a good thing. But, you know, when I was watching that opening sequence of Ed Norton and Helen yes. Carter going from therapy group to therapy group, it made me start to think that actually, maybe this is a comment on how people have taken on a consumerist mentality. That is this mm-hmm. idea that health decisions are actually being influenced by market forces. I think about third-party insurance, right? or I think about all of those TikToks or Instagram reels that talk about how you buy these candles and these bath salts, that's gonna make you feel better. No, Uh, those uh, things don't make you feel better, (laughs) right? They may facilitate a mood that hopefully you can reflect so that then you can take care of yourself that then maybe helps you feel better, But buying these bath salts and candles is not the solution. 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 And it made me think about how those two characters at the beginning of Fight Club were really, quote unquote, shopping around for mental health services. And I don't know that you can shop around for mental health services. When you're making personal health decisions, it shouldn't be based on what's the cheapest. It should actually be based on... Who's the right person to help you out with your issues? And are they skilled at that? And I thought, oh, this is interesting. Like uh, upon watching it 25 years later, I thought to myself, that's what it's actually telling me. The other thing that it was also telling me, too, is is, is that watching Ed Norton's character go from therapy group to therapy group to therapy group made me think that he was actually getting off on hearing. That's what I was going to say. Their stories, There's, right?
0: The damn product. yeah,
1: yeah. And it made me think about, oh my god, this is like he's hearing all these traumatic stories and getting off on them. And because of that, it made me think about like this idea of trauma porn. So, mm-hmm. in as much as mental health has been destigmatized in 2024, the interesting part about it being destigmatized is that it's actually been transformed into entertainment. And for people's amusement, as opposed to engaging and helping people with their trauma and how they've been hurt. It just made me think, oh my God, this was like a precursor in a lot of ways to trauma and making a comment on that. So it's interesting watching it a quarter century later that this film still seems relevant. And we haven't moved past where it was in 1999 Six, how about you? Like, when you kind of look at it now, what do you think?
0: You've said some things where you know about mental health or whatever. And I thought they were shopping, too. Like, when they're going, I'm like, but what is the point of him going to listen? Like, I was thinking, and I don't know how to say this. Was he getting off on it to hear about I thought this? he was. Or that's why it just I thought a sense of it as like, oh, People are worse than me, then I should be feeling better, right? And he was trying yeah, to find yeah. that outlet, which I just thought wasn't true. I go, maybe I was like, you know, maybe I'm a much more mature then, right? Now, versus like 25 years ago where I'm like, oh, this is super cool. There's this fight you don't talk about. But now when you watch it, you're like, oh, this is sadder. Or, this is a comment. And now in 2024, when we say voyeuristic, people share more on media. But- there wasn't that social media now. But now you're like, oh, that's poignant because now people share or – they self-disclose this type of stuff on social media, and people have that option. Whether it's going to mental support groups, you can find other facets of, I guess, trauma porn is how you say it. But, yeah. Yeah, it just, but it's when just people intriguing. overshare,
1: then what yes. ends up happening is, is that people start spilling over and end up causing more trauma or activate other people's trauma, which is not what it's supposed to be about. No. I just thought, oh, interesting. Today, what Fight Club is saying to me about masculinity is, is, is that it's toxic and that we've turned mental health from it being a stigma to it being entertainment. And I just think, Oof, oh, that's, that's so comment. problematic and, comment. So pro- and, and so true because it seems to ring true for me today, at least looking at it with these eyes and this brain 25 years later. When we move to our next uh, (laughs) film, Boys Don't Cry. Now, this has a lot to say about masculinity. But before we get into that, Six, tell our listeners the premise behind this particular movie.
0: This movie by Kimberly Pierce, if I understand, is a dramatization of the real life story of Brandon Tina, played by Hilary Swank, mm-hmm. this American that is a trans man who mm-hmm. attempts to find himself and love in the state of Nebraska, right. but unfortunately falls victim to a brutal hate crime perpetrated by two male acquaintances. I like in the description, it's acquaintances where he, <laughs> Brandon thinks that they are friends. Even when I read the premise and even when I revisited this, There's a lot of emotion to this. I know that 1999 and 2024 is 25 years, but to hear about this story and especially what's going on in the public about trans rights, it's hard to hear. And there's still a fight for it. And 1999, this movie coming out was, it's entering to mainstream. I know Kui and I had this conversation about alternative films. Mm -hmm. This would be an alternative film or it's an independent film. But for it to go in to get its wide critic acclaim, for it to be an Oscar nominated and an Oscar performance winning film, it was just, I guess it's dive into mainstream, this type of story. I would say that it was, if
1: you will, mainstream. So, of course, it came out in during the first part of the awards season. And as it started to get buzz, it became less of an independent and, again, more of a mainstream film. And back in 1999, interestingly Mm. enough, although I would say I'm part of the LGBTQ community, this was actually my first exposure to the T in the LGBTQ community. And it really challenged me to think about my biases about what it meant to be a transgender person. And that really that masculinity was a gender role. And when I saw Hillary Swank win her Oscar and Hillary Swank referred to Brandon Tina with he, him pronouns, I thought to myself, oh, I never knew that misgendering was a thing, even when that person's dead for that matter. Wow. Right? That yeah. Really, we should be honoring people in terms of how they saw their genders and, and who they were, not who we thought they needed to be because of, you know, sex organs that they've had. So it brought a lot of awareness to me in at that time in 1999 what about you when you first saw it in 1999 i
0: remember our friend tara and i talking about it i'm like i want to see this movie and tara's like i want to but i'm going to be really upset because we knew the premise Mm -hmm. we knew about it i remember renting it with my parents and i was stealing myself because this person and when i say this person i think the character brandon tina just wanted to find love and right. figure out how to fit in, and that's how I sort of just saw it. Yeah. And he felt that he identified as male. And I remember my mom and I quietly watching this. And yeah. yeah, it's so fresh in my mind, where the sense like he suffers from sexual assault from these people that he thought wouldn't, because he was playing this role. He didn't get to be his authentic self, and to see the demise that, that this is a true story. This person endured this was just trying to find love. And be accepted, regardless of the fact that they couldn't be their authentic self. And even when they're trying to be their authentic self, they still couldn't be. And that's what really struck me, that, like, we know this is a tragic story, and it's just a person trying to live their life, regardless of, like, that stuff. And I was just, it's been like that when my mom and I choose to watch movies where an injustice has happened to someone, Mm -hmm. you can't help but really put yourself... Atticus Finch says, you know, you can't understand a person until you walk a mile in their shoes. Right, right. And when you see it, like, I'm just like, it's so heavy and stuff. When I watch it, I'm like, this is an important film yeah. to watch, mm-hmm. to see this. Mm-hmm. And Kuya, it's so funny, like, your observation about Brandon Tina acknowledging that he, him – that thing—it's still a discussion now in 2024 about like how important pronouns are and how people want to be respected, and this is yeah. how I identify. Please, Kuya, would you have thought in 1999 that you, both you and I use our professional signatures with he, him, ill? And in fact, yeah. you know,
1: when you think about using pronouns, you think, oh, it's it's for trans folks. To say for, for my legal name gets misgendered all the time. Like people will look at my full name and expect to see a woman and then they get surprised and they see me. It's actually quite helpful when actually listing our pronouns in parentheses and saying these are our preferred pronouns, even though I'm not a trans person. When I was thinking about this back in 1999, I thought of it as misgendering someone and how Hillary Swank talked about this being very personal because I think I remember watching an interview reporter asking her about why did you use those pronouns she said because he should be shouldn't be disrespected at the Mm -hmm. generous end it's disrespected at the worst end it can be violent and assaultive is what I've come to learn years later and it is incredible that to this day we're still having to educate people on it but I guess so be it now in terms of 2024 and reviewing this again, this set of eyes and this brain 25 years later, I'm reminded really of the controversy that this film continues to have to the yes. state, especially within the TNB or the trans non binary community. Because mm-hmm. they would mention that today you wouldn't be casting Hillary Swank and Hillary Swank yeah. walking on the red carpet in very feminine outfits. Like she wore some really great fashion, but they said that actually, it just created more confusion. And it actually created a sense of deception on the screen, right? It's like, here's this, if you will, wayfish actress playing a masculine individual and then walking the red carpet in an ultra-feminine red carpet dress. Again, it was like, well, are trans people deceptive? It started to kind of give those wrong messages. And it was something, I think, that people feel mixed because in as much as I talked about in 1999, it brought awareness, came at a particular cost as this film kind of continues to be in the ether, so to speak. The other problematic thing that I think the TNB community and I think people at large in terms of survivors of sexual assault would probably say is the depiction of sexual assault it, that Brandon Tina endured. Yeah. It, yeah was really, it was hard
0: to watch. Like, yeah.
1: It was kind of like Monsters, the one with Halle Berry in it.
0: Monsters you, Ball? Yeah. Monsters Ball. Oh, right? I was thinking of The Accused, right? With oh, Je- that with, too. With, with Jodie yeah, Foster. Jodie yeah, Foster, right. Jofo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jofo. <laughs> like Joffo. also yeah. another form of traumatic porn. It was really gratuitous and... <sighs> I would say was re-traumatizing. And if I speak to colleagues and friends in the the TNB or the trans non-binary community, would they say that it actually activated their own trauma in a lot of ways? Because trans folks are not only marginalized, are actually that much more predisposed to violence and sexual violence. So... In as much as the film was groundbreaking at the time, it was also product of its time. Because right. today, it's like, if they were to remake it, it would not be a cisgendered woman in That's that right. role. I agree and with I you I don't wholly. know that they would actually be depicting the sexual assault in that graphic detail. In some ways... Today, it would be kind of like a Greek tragedy where the terrible stuff happens off screen, but it's left to your imagination. You know what's happening. But you know what's happened, and you know that it's terrible and you know that it's traumatic and that it is quite complex in its nature. So... It hasn't stood the test of time so well, No, but it has certainly raised awareness and opened up the conversation on trans non-binary folk and the rights that they don't have and their struggle to be their genuine and authentic selves, as you talked about. Sigs, any for sure. thoughts for you today, like in 2024 are no, watching?
0: I wouldn't think this movie would be made today without someone from the trans community playing that role. Yeah. Or T- it would be much more authentic. In my head or whatever, I've seen this movie and like the depiction of the sexual assault was a, a lot to take. But this is the story that was shared. Right, and Right, right. I'm sure if it was redone or if it was put up again you could find the actors out there where there's actual representation of like, this is yeah. a trans person yeah. playing this role. And that's a good thing in that sense. It's that, a good you know, thing
1: and it just makes you understand a little bit better about why representation matters and reflection matters. That sometimes right. it is important to have a trans person play a trans role or a gay character play a gay, play role. gay, car-
0: gay role. That's exactly. right, because
1: I think Pierce, the director, had said at the time, I couldn't find anybody that actually embodied Brandon Tina. And it was just like, really? 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 And look at it now. And look at it now. Look at
0: it now, right? And we still have more ways to go in that sense. Yeah. If anything,
1: it shows the hostility of Hollywood back in 1999, that you couldn't apparently find trans... Bankroll
0: a movie without someone that was cisgendered and a name, right? And I... And this is it would not be an alternative film. This would not be alternative cinema. This would not in the sense of like there are many tragic stories.
1: Yeah. And uh, that's yeah, yeah. not
0: just that's just one of the stories. Which, which can be seen like, by mainstream audiences. Yeah, as exactly. Well. But yeah. we could go yeah. into another d- yeah. deep dive on that. Speaking of
1: real mainstream,
0: right? The next mainstream go. is American Pie. So exactly. six
1: tell our- our listeners, what American Pie is all about.
0: Let's be honest, folks. It's back to the sex comedy for teenage boys, <laughs> white yes. teenage boys, yes. and trying to lose virginity bed prom night. Plain and simple. That's it. Right. Here's the thing. What was this movie called when it was trying to be like, well? Yes. To so be just showed? to add to the yeah.
1: premise before it was made, it was actually being shopped around Hollywood. This title. Here you go. Are you ready, folks? Yeah. It was called. Untitled teenage sex comedy. Yeah. So that's what they call that. It. Yeah. yeah.
0: Instead of the title of the high school, which was called East Great Falls High, yes. they went to that to start like, ooh, try to get this. Now, here's the thing. We are both Gen Xers. We grew right, up in right. the 80s. We were teens and young 20 year olds in the 90s. There was something about a sex comedy, yes. right? They, we, there are shows like Porkies or whatever. And growing up in the 80s and 90s, if we wanted to watch something risque on a, Friday night, we'd watch Mm -hmm. TV, Channel 7, and maybe you get to see some nudity or whatever. Yes, yes, yes. It was this throwback where it went to mainstream, right? Now, this movie was funny, and I'm trying to think of 1999 myself, and I remember renting it during the holidays, and I remember watching it in the theaters. Like, it was funny. Like, Jennifer Coolidge before The White Lotus, this is where she pops out as a MILF.
1: Yes, that's it right.
0: Introduced, updated <laughs> Mrs. Robinson, the character played by Sean, whatever his name is, as Stiffler was a likable. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. And Eugene Levy, yes, I've that's known right, him that, for dad. SCTV. He was that wonderful dad. Like these are like the standards from this, and like a bunch of you know, corn-fed white guys trying to lose their virginity. Right, right. That, that was it. Right. It, it was funny. That was 1999. I was in a guffaw. If you asked me about like 25 years ago, me, where I had a Maxim subscription.
1: <laughs> yes, I know you. A did. Sub,
0: like where I would read it, and I would just be sort of vapid, and I mm-hmm. needed my brain was still growing. Oh, you've adult. developed since then. Sam. I've, I've developed many of times. It was just that funny American Pie, right, and the right. buying. We'll have thoughts on 2024. That was my first take about 1999. What was your thoughts about it in 1999, Kuya? You
1: know, just like you, I thought it was just really an updated version of all of these teenage sex comedies from the 80s, right? So whether it was Fast Times at Richmond High or Porky's or Revenge of the (laughs) Nerds, it was really just an updated version of that. I really didn't pay much attention to it. Like, I remember everyone was like, all like, hey, this is so funny. And this was really great. But I just thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like another teenage sex comedy. I never thought of it as it really about pushing the boundaries of sexual taste, because you'll remember that it had an R rating and really just discounted it. And it was interesting because I had not realized that 80s there was a plethora of teenage sex comedies but in the 90s there was really a lull and such films didn't really exist until you know American Pie came out right made me just think how this was just about men being sex crazed in a lot of ways (laughs) yeah is really what I thought and that it was really kind of reiterated this idea that sex is something taboo and you know, I didn't really again, I just discounted. It. I didn't really think too much of it at the time. But now, like when I think about looking at it in 2024, I have to tell you, Sigs, and I would agree with cultural study critics talking about it this way, that they see the film as really being the template for movies that we hail as really clever comedies, like super bad the Hangover series, the 40-year-old version, and all of Judd Apatow's like, oeuvre of movies right. and stuff like that. And I think it, it really has to do with how cultural studies critics have really said that its genius lies in how... Back in the 80s, and I guess to some extent in the 90s, right up until 1999, you really couldn't talk about sex and feel that it wasn't a taboo of sorts, right? And I would agree. Like, I remember it was like, ooh, you want to watch Risky Business or ooh, you want to watch Porky's or something like that? There was something very kind of like titillating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, titillating and dirty about it. But in this case, American Pie really became a vanguard of sorts and said that, hey, Sex isn't taboo, it's just clumsy. <laughs> and that fair you enough. Know, yeah, clumsy. That, yeah, it can be clumsy, and that men and sex are even more clumsy, if not inept. In some ways, for me, when I look at it, it actually started to turn masculinity on its head in some ways, it really challenged the idea that men weren't necessarily sexual beasts that we were led to believe a lot of times, that it can be clumsy. But in that clumsiness, it can be fun. And then you get all this kind of hilarity that ensues, which then again, sets up that template for funny but stupid films. Like what I said before, Superbad and Bridesmaids and all of these funny things that we've seen afterwards in 2000, as well as in 2010s and even up into 2020s. What about you, Sigs? Like now, when you think about
0: American Pie in
1: 2024...
0: (laughs) In 2024, it's so funny. Like, before I was like, you know, it wasn't really that inclusive. I mean, John Cho was in the original true. American pilot, yeah. bi- but it was a bit part, right? Yeah. He got the word MILF, like, punctuated in, like, the zeitgeist. The tropes were sort of sucky back then. They don't stick anymore. And, like, six comedies were churned out for teens and have evolved. Like you said, super bad. But, look, if we look in more recent times, we have book smart.
1: Yes, that's with right.
0: Olivia Wilde, which is great. Never have I ever sex education, right? Eugene Levy and Coolidge are great. They're common bookmarks, but you're right. It did say that sex is clumsy. And even if you look at the four main characters of American Pie, some of them got to those goals. Some of them didn't. Right. And some of them like, you know, we're still going to have a great summer. They weren't perfect. Yeah. They were just thinking. And even some of them were like, even if they didn't get it, they created some sort of bond. And I'm thinking of the Chris Klein character and Mina yeah. Sabari characters where they just didn't have sex. But they were just like, we're in a relationship. And it's not all what it's cracked up to be to take the virginity and be like, you know, things are going OK. Like, I'll give it that. Yeah. But now I'm just like, oh, this is, I guess I would little put it, like, as Porky's in yeah. the 80s for us, but, like, it was just more mainstream. And, and now if you see, like, a version of American Pie, the series, or whatever version it has out, it's a bit more, you'll have, like, girls yes. as the main characters trying to lose right. their virginity. And the same type of tropes, the same time, like, someone wears a vibrator and they get stimulated in front of their parents, like, that's the main, like, joke. And they try to mix it up a little bit more. But, like... Yeah, it sort of just makes me laugh of a time where, like, okay, I guess this is our version of Porkies and now, like, it's a bit more broader, and it's clumsy, and it's awkward. It's that awkwardness or whatever. Not everyone's the master of their domain when it comes to sex and that type of masculinity when it comes to that being a teen, which, which I, I, I sort of accept and evolved, right? So, yeah,
1: and I think that that's actually refreshing, and you're right. Like, it's gone from taboo, sex is taboo, to sex is clumsy. To sex can be actually political or educational Mm -hmm. or furtive and stuff like that. I just like the fact that perhaps it opened the door to different ideas about sex, you know, and I think that's what other cultural studies critics are saying. So as I said, it's become a vanguard for what has later come out to be in terms of like any movie's like talking about sex. I do think we've kind of gone a little bit over the edge, like especially with things like Euphoria lately, like that has kind of, (laughs) you know, which is another podcast altogether, but, you know, kind of sticking to this one in terms of like what these films have represented, certainly American Pie has represented that. The running theme in all of this is, of course, this idea of like how 1999 thought about masculinity and what we've been thinking about masculinity to today. But I think, you know, Sigs, what I wanted to talk to you about, at least in this particular episode, was not only are we kind of reflecting on these three movies 25 years ago as well as today, but reflecting on masculinity in the Filipino diaspora, Mm -hmm. you know, and I came across this study by Bagaporo and Papadelos, who had studied Filipino men. In the Philippines. So not necessarily Filipino men in the diaspora, but it made me really think about kind of like their findings and what they had found was Mm -hmm. that there were three particular types of archetypes or features in terms of how Filipino men in the Philippines view masculinity. So either taking on the breadwinner role or the padre de familia or a father of the family role Mm -hmm. and or a good nature social persona. And in my observation, I would say probably that these same masculine ideals in Filipino men exist in the diaspora, but probably through our parents' generation. So when I say That's breadwinner, padre right. de good natured social persona, I'm sure you've seen it either in our fathers or in our titos or our ninongs that
0: live in the diaspora. Would you agree? Yes. Too? Yeah. When, you hear, when they heard the word breadwinner, I heard that term from my parents. Yeah, Totally. Totally Being the right. breadwinner and providing. I do see that as a patriarchal type of rule. Yeah, And, yeah. and it was, I heard about it and seen it growing up.
1: Yeah, yeah. these were interesting findings, you know, that were found by Bagaporo and Papadelos, you know, mm-hmm. and... Something that I just kind of wanted to clarify too, also, is is, is that what is meant by good natured social persona. You know, Uh what they found in their study was this is that this man is someone who's kind, respectful, but also avoids fights or doesn't get into fights. He's also approachable and yet harmonious with others and is generous and helpful and is respected all in the community. And I think to myself, Mm. oh my God, that's almost impossible to aspire (laughs) to, right? How can you be all of this stuff? Yeah. So maybe me think about, you know, well, what are the challenges with these particular archetypes that have been revealed by Filipino men and the Filipinos? And I would probably Mm -hmm. say by extension, our titos and our fathers of our generation. Mm -hmm. I think one is that idea of breadwinners. I think especially with the caring regime and the sending regime of the Philippines where it's domestic workers and nurses, which are generally feminized roles. Yes. That interestingly enough, make the most money as opposed to when Filipino men are in the diaspora might not be able to actually get professional roles, mm-hmm. that Filipino men in the diaspora, especially of our parents' generation, that's right. sometimes is not the man in the heterosexual relationship. In other words, the breadwinner is not sometimes the man in that particular partnership. And the other thing that I think is also challenging about all of this is that idea of padre de familia. And I don't know if you've heard about this, right? Like, And I've heard this joke quite often in my family and with my parents. My dad will quite often say, you know, although he's the head of the family, it's my mom that's the net, implying that dad is just a figurehead. You know, with no real decision making capacity, it's mom that actually makes this decision. So, wherever the neck decides to turn, the head head will follow. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. Have you ever heard that joke?
0: Yes, I've heard the neck thing. And also, too, like, I I think you touched on this too when we talked about Mm matriarchy in a a family or whatever that, yeah, that those are the roles. But really, the head of the family, the neck is turned by the mom. I've heard of that term, especially with my parents. Yeah.
1: And when we think about, Filipinas in the diaspora as they're more likely the breadwinners in a lot of Filipino families in the diaspora, at least currently they are. And then like what I was saying, the other challenge in all of this is being that good-natured social persona. The difficulty I think also too is, is that having this person who ultimately at the end of the day avoids fights can sometimes be over accommodating and be taken advantage of. And I think that that's what happens quite a lot. I know that I've talked on this podcast several times of, and as my dad has said to me, let people misestimate you. Right. Because I think people think that we'll just kind of like play dead or roll over and play dead or be doormats and stuff like that because of what they think of us in the diaspora and probably what some people think of Filipino men in the Philippines for that matter. Mm -hmm. So I think that these are challenges that I think our parents, our fathers and our titos and our ninos faced. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Filipino men who are Gen Xers like ourselves or Filipino men who are millennials or Gen Zs, I know that we don't want to inherit these ideals. And so what I've been thinking about lately is about transforming them to be a lot more collaborative and inclusive in mm-hmm. some way. So instead of being this kind of breadwinner or aspiring to be a breadwinner, perhaps we can think of ourselves as a consensus building mm-hmm. contributor, right? So you still contribute to the family household. You still contribute to the family coffers, if you will. You know, we don't pretend to be the decision maker. We actually make decisions with everybody in the family. Or instead of being the padre de familia, so being the head of the household, father of the family, He's actually the advocate for the family. And by extension, sometimes the communities are family. So I would also say the advocate for the community. And instead of this good natured social persona where one avoids conflict, I would say that, you know, perhaps maybe this has to transform into Filipino men in the diaspora being grounded, community focused, filled with integrity, mm-hmm. but also not afraid to get into fights, like fighting for what you believe in, instead of being this kind of overly accommodating Filipino man. Because I think sometimes we can be guilty of that. Like, it's like, oh, you know, bahala now, we'll leave it for another day. It's okay. Right. But they walked all over us. Well, mm-hmm. I don't think that that's okay, especially if our rights are being trampled upon. So that's kind of what I was thinking. And I wanted to just know your kind of reactions to all of this, this idea of breadwinner, de familia, good-natured social persona. These are ideas of what it means to be a Filipino man or a Filipino with masculine traits and stuff like that. But instead of inheriting them, I've been thinking about how can we transform them, transforming it into these Three other ideas, like being a consensus-building contributor, being an advocate, and being someone that's really grounded but not afraid to fight when necessary.
0: The role of the breadwinner is something that I was talked to a lot when I was younger. And then when I was getting married, I got engaged to Emily, and then we're having kids. Mm -hmm. It's suddenly, there was a shift in the discussion, and this is both my parents, about. my mom and dad, don't even say breadwinner, they said you're providing for your family. Right. And when you use the term instead of breadwinner, providing... And my wife and i were saying whatever it all goes to the same pot at yeah. the end of the day, right? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's not a measure. It doesn't mean just because one partner makes more than the other. It all goes to the same pot. And my right. parents are like, you're providing both. And it's good that you're and my mom goes right, be happy that you are blessed. You both work at the public service and mm-hmm. you're able to provide for your family. And my dad was just like, the importance is about. It's not really about breadwinners being able to provide and that your people, your people are being taken care of and your people are your family and stuff. And, right. and it doesn't matter. You don't have to be solely. It's not just you. It's not on your shoulders to build on. And it's something collaborative that you do as a couple. I think there was a shift from like, oh, well, you're right. It's not solely me. And that right. doesn't make any difference if Emily made more money than me or it shouldn't because it goes into the same pot. That's right. It's funny Koya, in that sense or whatever. I, I have this example and I don't know how to speak about it broadly because I have a Tita where clearly in the sense white collar job and then the partner isn't. Yes. They have an equal partnership. My parents are very like, oh yeah, you know, it's equal partnership. But people are like, well, but she has a white collar job. And it's almost as if that Tito is less of a man. And I'm using this in a broad term, less of a man because he doesn't have a white collar job as his partner, but that shouldn't matter, right? It like, shouldn't matter. it's still a job, a job and what it's matters, so interesting.
1: What matters is, is that there's equity, right? As opposed to equality. Yes. It's not about putting in the white collar female partner who puts in $50 versus the blue collar male partner putting in $50. If, even if he earns less, it's not about him putting in fifty dollars. it's putting in fifty percent right of his energy right. you know so and if that turns out and converts to thirty dollars, then it converts to thirty dollars, right but it's still an equitable contribution to the pot. exactly.
0: and it's still an important piece. It doesn't make you any less it doesn't make you're you still less. be becoming a provider. Right. Because in the breadwinner, you there's that connotation of like, I win because I bring the most bread. In a provider, you're working together because you're providing yeah. for your family. And, it, yeah. and it's funny, that subtle term that had changed from both of my parents' language, it's just, it, it makes me think. And then when I hear yeah. breadwinner, I find, do you find the word breadwinner is such like a, an old word? In the it's sense of such like, an old world and, and right, I like yeah. how you've
1: reframed it as a provider. And I certainly think that I original idea that I put forward as consensus building contributor, yeah. same thing, right? It's yeah, the exactly. same idea that we, you provide together. by working together and that your contribution is as equitable as anyone else's in, in your relationship.
0: Exactly. And it doesn't solely rest on a male member. Like, yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? It sort of gets away from it. So I sort of like that kind of thing, and I do agree that consensus building—it's—it's it's something where you work together, and it's not no man's an island. We all work together, That's and right. it sort of knocks down that term, yeah, and that sort of that script, yeah. I guess you would say.
1: Yeah, I think for the new year ahead and the fixing of the week, I think what we need to do is remind ourselves that we are not bound, as you say, by these masculine scripts that we've mm-hmm. gotten from the Philippines and what. This study has shown that we don't have to be the breadwinner, we can be the provider or the contributor, we don't have to be the padre de familia, we can instead be the advocate. And we don't have to be this good-natured person who avoids fights at all costs, <laughs> but instead is actually community-focused and filled with integrity and is willing to fight for the right cause or for the right issue. So I think that that's kind of where I think we should kick off 2024 with, again, this idea that we're not bound to these masculine scripts as Filipino men and Filipino masculine identified individuals in the diaspora. So I don't know if there's anything else to add. No, I think that's bad. a great
0: fixing and the fixing of the weekend. Welcome back into the vault of 2024 with the hollow mm-hmm. hollow podcast. So email us, tell us what you think about those movies we cited, boys don't cry, um, fight club, American pie, and your thoughts on um, what we brought up about Filipino masculinity Email us at holoholopopculture at gmail.com. The Holohol podcast is available wherever you get podcasts. Rate us, leave a review, tell your friends about us. And we are on Instagram at holoholopopculture.
1: Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Cheltering, and we'll see all of you guys again
0: real soon. See you guys soon.